Let me summarize the answer to the question which I had asked previously. And that is, why didn't the Rabbani Shalom warn Yitzchak that if he reveals to Esau the fact, number one, that he is eligible to get the brachas back, as we had seen previously, and also if he reveals to Esau the conditional nature of the brachas to Yaakov, in other words, that if Yaakov keeps the mitzvahs, then he deserves to keep the brachas, and he will massacre the Bria through that way. And if he does chatoim, if his descendants do chatoim, of course, then he will lose the brachas, and he will have to be massacre the Bria, the kilkul the Bria, of course, through method B, which is a completely different way. Now, when Yitzchak revealed these things to Esav, why didn't Rabbi Shalom, of course, tell Yitzchak that Esav would become a tremendous or devastating prosecutor against the Jews. Because as we know, the Jews can only lose these brachas because of the chatoim or the sins of the Jews. They can lose it no other way and by no other power. So if tremendous damage can come out in the sense that the Jews can lose the wealth and dominance of the brachas which was given to them, because of the kitrug, the prosecution, the uh, tremendous prosecutorial attempts of Esau. So why doesn't the Rabbani Shalom then warn Yitzchak of what is uh, what the significance of telling Esau these ideas? And the answer to that is that even if Esau is a makatrik, and therefore as a result, of course, he will get the brochas from Yaakov, then the truth is that if this really happens, that the brochas do go to Esau as a result of the kitrug of Esau to Yaakov, then this is really beneficial to Yaakov. Why? Because the fact that Esav gets the brachas at all indicates, in other words, that Yaakov is doing chatoim. And therefore, if Yaakov is doing chatoim, then instead of being masak in the Bria, the way it should be, instead of doing that, then Yaakov and his descendants are really being makalkal the Bria. And as a result of that, if he keeps the first method, then of course we see greater Kilkul in the Bria and not greater Tikkun. Therefore, if Esav does succeed in getting the brachas from Yaakov, it's really beneficial for Yaakov. Because the fact that Esav gets the brachas at all, of course, indicates that Yaakov is sinning and being makalkal the Bria. Even further, <clears throat> therefore, method B, which is of course the uh, exile, subjugation and persecution, is a better way for Yaakov and his descendants to massacre the Bria. And of course, not method A, which is material wealth and dominance. Now, we know that since Esav hates Yaakov, as the Torah itself explicitly states, Vayistim Esav es Yaakov, that Esav hated Yaakov, of course, for the brochas that he took from him, then what the Rabbani Shalom does is that he will allow him, or Esav, to subjugate and to persecute Yaakov, and as a result of that, be the very vehicle, the very instrument by which Yaakov is able to massacre the Bria and therefore earn Ulam Habo. Therefore, Esav and his descendants become the instrument of Anhogas Yichod of the Rabban Islam to bring the Jews to massacre the Bria, of course, and to give them Ulam Habo. Now, what is very important to distinguish and to remember is that just because the Jews lost the brachas of Yaakov, uh, of Yaakov. In other words, that they lost the bracha of material wealth and dominance. 
that these things are given, and these things, of course, were given to Esav, it doesn't mean automatically that the Jews must be oppressed and persecuted by Esav. It doesn't mean that at all. Why? In other words, it doesn't mean that Esav has permission and right to do this. All it means is that as a result of the sins of Yaakov, what this merely gives Esav is that it gives him the brochus and no more. It doesn't give him the right to persecute and to oppress Yaakov and his descendants. The loss of the brachas to Yaakov merely means that Esav now gets these brachas. So therefore, instead of Yaakov having the wealth and dominance, now it is Esav and his descendants that has the wealth and dominance. But so what? But even if Klai Yisrael would be in the country that Esav dominated, but still they can be protected under the country of Esav, just like Jews in America are not persecuted, we are under the subjugation of American civilization, but there's no persecution. So therefore, this could be the same situation with the Jews and, of course, and the descendants of Esav that have these brachas. In other words, the fact that Esav gets those brachas in no way means that he has to persecute and, of course, subject the Jews to tremendous yisurin, tremendous sufferings. The fact that Esav uses his wealth and dominance. In other words, the fact that Esav employs the brochas which he got to actually afflict, to actually persecute the Jews is a result of his own free will choice since he hates Yaakov. In other words, the fact that he has the wherewithal to afflict and oppress Yaakov does not mean, of course, that he has to. But the truth is, of course, that Esav wants to so he's using the brachas in order to afflict and oppress the descendants of Yaakov in order to make the Jews suffer. This is a very important idea to remember that one does not necessitate the other. The fact that Jews lose the brachas does not necessitate the fact that Esav, who now has those brachas, has to oppress the Jews. If he does, it's because he wants to oppress the Jews because he hates the Jews. And therefore he uses the brachas which he got. He uses that wealth, the ability and the power to oppress the Jews. But that's his own free will. What does the Rabbani Shalom do? What the Rabbani Shalom then does is he uses Esav's free will choice to oppress the Jews, to afflict the Jews. And therefore he uses that free will choice in the sense that Esav wants to, of course, afflict the Jews, to bring about the tikkun of creation through the Jews. In other words, since the Jews lost method A of being Masak in the Bria, of removing the Kilka from creation because of the sins of the Jews, this means that now they enter method B, which means that they now will be in exile, they will now be subjugated by other nations, and if need be, if they keep sinning, they will even be oppressed and afflicted by other nations. Now, who is that nation that will cause the Jews to suffer and in that sense be the instrument of method B. In other words, will allow the Jews to massacre the Kilkul and the Bria by their exile, subjugation and persecution. Who will be that nation? The truth is that nation could be any nation that wishes to harm the Jews. And the revolution merely allows them to exercise their free will and it doesn't interfere with their desire to, of course, harm the Jews. Of course, because he wants to have the method B as the way of being Masakin, the Kilkun creation. 
But the truth is that any nation that so desires to harm the Jews, of course, can be chosen to be the instrument of method B, to be the instrument, the vehicle of the Anhogas Yichod. Now, since Esav does have that wealth and dominion, and he does have that power, and he wants to harm the Jews, he wants to afflict and persecute the Jews, then what the Rabbanisham allows is that let him be the one whereby the Jews will earn Ulam Habba, whereby they will achieve the task of being massacred, the Kilkul in creation. Let Esau be the one who will actually enable Yaakov to inherit Ulam Habba, which is really paradoxical, because Esau himself, of course, has no idea that he is the very instrument for the salvation, for the Yeshua of the Jewish nation itself. Now, in other words, since the Jews lost the method A of removing the Kilka from creation because of their sins, this merely means, as I said, that any nation can, any nation that so chooses by their own free will to subjugate and persecute the Jews can be designated by the Rabbani Shalom to do this. In other words, to bring about the su- successful completion of method B. But however, since Esav freely chooses to, to hate Yaakov and his descendants, then what the Rabbani Shalom does is he uses Esav himself, he uses Esav's desire to persecute the Jews, since of course he now has the brochus of wealth, power and dominion, to actually bring about the tikkun of the Kilkul in creation rather than any other nation. But the fact that Esav has been so designated to do this, of course, is Esav's fault and no other, because the truth is that the revolution will allow a nation who hates the Jews to be the instrument of the Anhogas HaYichod, to allow the Jews to successfully massacre the Kilkin creation through method B. However, since Esav does have the brochus, that wealth and power and dominion, and the fact that he does hate the Jews, he is the instrument of Anhogas HaYichod. So unwittingly, of course, and unknowingly, Esav is bringing the world to a tikkun, uh, and of course, enabling the Jews to earn Ulam Habba. Let us now try to answer the fourth question, which was previously asked in the 79th shear, for those who recall. In any case, what was that question? The question was this, and this will lead us into a discussion about the history of Rome. And we will see how all this is, emanates from the entire parish of Tildes, interestingly enough. The question was, even if it is necessary decreed, that the Jews must go into Golis, that they must go into exile, that they must be dominated or subjugated by other nations, and of course that eventually they will be persecuted and afflicted by other nations. Even if that is so decreed, then the question is, why is it that Esau, who of course is synonymous with Rome, who now is synonymous with Christianity, why is it that they were given that position for so long, 2,000 years, more than any other nation on earth that has subjugated the Jews. And what were the nations that have subjugated the Jews? The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks. Why is it that Rome has had such a tremendous endurance in terms of its power to be able to afflict, to make the Jews suffer? This is the question. Now, besides this question, which I am now posing, and I want to answer the fourth question as previously. I want to ask one more question, another question in the same area. And then, of course, the answer that I give will answer both.
What is this question that I want to ask in addition? Why is it that Rome rose to true world power status relatively shortly before the Churban of the second base of Middash, and relative, relatively shortly before the fact that Jews went into Golas? Because if you recall, the base of Middash was destroyed in the year 70 CE, okay, and Rome really rose to world power status in the first century BCE. Approximately, it was powerful before, but it really assumed its world power, leadership, and dominion. So, on the history scale, the question is how do we account for the fact that Rome rose to such a world power status in a relatively short time before the Churban of the second base of Megdish and before the Jews went into exile? This is the second question I want to ask. In order to answer both questions, let us begin to reflect on this interesting thought. If it is true that when Yaakov and his descendants sin, and remember this is the principle that we see as a result of Pasha's told us, as a result of what Yitzchak told Esau. If it is true that when Yaakov and his descendants sin, then what happens is that they lose the brochus of wealth and dominion. And these items, of course, are given to Esav and his descendants. Then obviously, if this is true, we should be able to observe this in history. Is that correct? Therefore, the question is, or rather the idea is, do we really see this? If we trace the parallel history of Rome, Roman history, and the parallel history of Jewish history, if we trace them as one thing is happening to another, can we actually see this inverse rise and fall of one versus the other? Because according to the principle, which is established in Pasha's told us, this is what happens. That when the Jews sin, their power and wealth diminishes, because we know that method A diminishes, and we know therefore that Asaph gets more and more of that power and wealth. So therefore, we should therefore be able to see this in history. Do we in effect really see this? Well, let's begin to take a look at a, uh, a certain view of history and let's begin to examine this. When did the Jews actually realize the wealth and power of the Brochus? You know when? You know when they really came into this wealth and power? In the days of Shlomo HaMelech. That era was the most powerful and greatest era of the Jews. In that era, the wealth and the dominion of the Jews over all nations was the greatest. Shlomo Melech had everybody under his power. Not only that, there was incredible peace and harmony. It was a tremendous time of well-being at the time of Shlomo Melech. A lot of tremendous amount of chokhmah and wisdom. So therefore, the time that the Brachas really realized uh, their kiyom, their fulfillment, really was in the time of Shlomo Melech. That is when the Jews really came into that kind of a blessing. Now, at that time, we hear nothing about Italy or Rome. Because historians don't even go that far back. They don't really hear about Italy or Rome, except the fact that there were different tribes living in the Italian, uh, the, the Italian uh, lands, the, Italy. That's all they really say. But you don't hear of, it, of them at all on the world scale. Now, there's an interesting medrash that says that when Shlomo married the daughter of Paroi, Bas Paroi, you know what happened? 
Gavriel came down and he planted a reed. And from that reed became a bank. A bank, you know, of, of land. A piece of land. And from that piece of land, of course, became Rome. This is what the Medrash says. That because of what Shlomo Melech did, that he married Baspare, which was a very bad thing that he did. As a result of that, what was the repercussions? That Gavriel goes and takes a reed. And he gives, or, or he brings into existence a certain piece of land in which Rome would now grow. Now, not only that, not only does the Medrash say that, but he also says, it also says that when Yerovim, after right after Shlomo, Yerovim, of course, is the one who split the kingdoms, from Rechavim, who is Shlomo's son. Then you had uh, the kingdom of Israel, which Yerovim took, and you had the kingdom of Judah, which, of course, Rechavim took as the fact that he was, of course, the son of Shlomo Melech. Now, Yerovam brought, introduced two calves, and what eventually happened, of course, is that the Jews began worshipping these calves. The Medrash says at that point, that you know what happened? At that point, a hut was built for Rome. That's what it says. As a result of the calves which Yerovam introduced, and the fact that Christville began worshipping these calves, what happened? A hut was built for Rome. So what do we see? We see, interestingly enough, that the Medrash obviously says that there is some kind of relationship between the sinning of the Jews and the establishment of Rome. Now, these Medrashim can be very well understood according to the previous framework that has been developed. And what is that? That as the Jews begin sinning, the wealth and dominion which they have begin to be slowly eroded slowly removed from them and instead they begin to be slowly transferred to Esau who is Rome. In other words we see that as the Jews began to sin as seen by the fact that Shlomo married, Shlomo Melech married Basparoi and Yerobim introduced the two calves for worship Okay, then what do we see? That method A which is wealth and dominion for being Masakin, the Kilkan creation, begins slowly diminishing, and consequently we see the simultaneous rise in the good fortune of the Romans. Therefore, we see that as a result of the fact that Shlomo and Yerovim began doing things which, were, which would lead Israel into Chatoim, there was a simultaneous rise in some aspect of Roman civilization. And this is what the Medrash says. Now, Historically, we see the event in Judaism, in Jewish history. What is the historical event in, of course, Roman history? Now, historically, an Oriental people with a sophisticated culture conquered Italy just about that time. And you know what they were called? They were called the Etruscans. Historians say that an Oriental people called the Etruscans who had a very sophisticated culture, as one can see by the different things that they left over, what they did is that they conquered Italy, okay, and they subjugated Italy. Now, historians don't know who they really were, only the fact that they were Oriental, in the, in the sense that they came from the Middle East. They don't know where they came from, and they don't even know really where, when they arrived in Italy, or even where they landed. They know very little about the Etruscans, only about the fact that they did subjugate the Italians or the uh, people of Italy, the tribes of Italy, nations of Italy, whatever, small cities in Italy. 
That they do know. Now, they conjecture that when did the Etruscans come to Italy? Around the 9th century, which interestingly enough is around the time of Shlomo HaMelech, okay, or shortly thereafter in terms of the world historical scale. And they ruled Italy until the end of the 6th century, which was until 509 BCE. And at that time, the Etruscan kings were overthrown and the Roman Republic came into existence. Therefore, what do we see? We see, therefore, that the uh, simultaneous sins of the Jews, as exhibited by Shlomo HaMelech and the calves of Yerobim, actually give rise to another nation being able to capture Italy and begin ruling. It is the beginning of the civilization of Italy. And historians say that the Etruscans took over Italy around that time. So we begin to see that the sins of the Jews, okay, begins giving rise or existence to the civilization of Rome. And it really started from the Etruscans. Now, it would seem, according to our tradition, that since the Gemara says that Esau is Edoim, and Edoim is Rome, this would seem to indicate that the progenitors of these Oriental people really is Esau. It is very likely that these people are the children of Esau, the Etruscans. And therefore, they are, of course, Oriental people, and they went to Italy. Now, besides ruling Italy, the, you know, besides the fact that the Etruscans ruled Italy, they had the greatest impact and influence on Italy in terms of their culture. They were a very sophisticated culture, and apparently what was living in Italy was just petty tribes or whatever. And they, as a nation, of course, they conquered Italy, and they introduced tremendous advances in culture. And as a result of that, they elevated the status of the peoples of the, the peninsula of Italy, the Italian peninsula, to a much higher level. And of course we see that that of course coincides with the beginnings of the sinning of the Jew from the time that they really achieved the brochus. In the sense that Shlomo Melech at that time, they had the greatest wealth and dominion at that time. Therefore we hear nothing about Italy, remember. We hear about Italy all of a sudden through the Medrash when Shlomo and Yerovim begin sinning. We all of a sudden hear about Rome. And what we hear, of course, is that Gavriel plants a reed and creates a land for the Romans. And then also that they get a hut, which of course symbolically means, right? This symbolically means, of course, the birth of Rome. doesn't mean he literally planted land and made a building for them. But it means the beginning of the civilization of Rome. Therefore, what do we see? That at the same time that the Medrash says that a bank in a hut was made for Rome, and we know, of course, that this means that symbolically it means the birth of Rome, which was in the early time of, in, which was in the time of the early phase of the monarchy in Israel, at the time of Shlomo, in the time, of course, Yerovim and Rechavim. The Etruscans at that same time, and this is the corresponding parallel event in Roman history, the Etruscans and Oriental nations invade Italy to begin shaping and profoundly influencing the future Rome. Okay, that's the first important uh, uh, parallel we see in history. Now, let's take a look at the next significant event of the Jews, which represents the decline of wealth and dominion as a result of the sins. Okay, and then by looking at that event, let's take a look at what happened to Rome and see if there's a rise. Well, 
The next event, which we can say is the most significant event, which indicates the greatest decline in spirituality, is what? Is the Churban Bayeswishen, the destruction of the first Besamikdash, which historians say took place in 586 BCE. And even though according to Chazal, it's really inaccurate, it probably took place much later, in the year 400 or whatever. But certainly around that time, it took place. Now, and this, of course, is the uh, the Churban Bayes region, which, of course, uh, indicate to, in a tremendous way the uh, spiritual decline of the Jewish people. Now, this event, if you think about it, is nothing more than the expression of the diminution of Methan A. That's really what it is. It's the uh, the uh, reducing of method A, which uh, which can be used, of course, to massacre Libria. That's really what the Churban Bayes region is. Now. Let's take a look at the parallel in Roman history. And we find very interesting, interesting enough in Roman history, actually it's incredible, that just around that time that the, you had the destruction of the first base of English, you had the removal of the last Etruscan kings, and you had the emergence of the Roman nation, the Roman Republic. That's when Rome became a republic. In other words, they did away with their kings, and you began to see the emergence of a distinct Roman nation, no more subjugated under the Etruscans. But now you saw the emergence of a real nation. And this happened in 509 BCE. That was the emergence of the Roman nation, the Roman Republic. So again we see that as the Jews lose their base in Migdash and they are exiled, what happens in Roman history? The reverse. The Romans are given... The, their, their autonomy for the first time Mamish around that time in the sense that they lose the power the Etruscans lose their power and Rome becomes a republic it becomes an independent nation by itself not a world power yet because you need the sins of the Jews to make that right but the second major phase has happened first major phase is the Etruscans invaded to give them a sophisticated culture and society at the same time as Shlomo and Yerovim, which was Mamish Megala, was Nizgala by that Medish. And the second significant event, you see the rise of Rome as a true independent nation. At the same time that the Jews lose their status as a nation and they go into exile into Bovel. Interesting. Now, this of course, the Roman Republic lasted of course until the Caesars, until Julius Caesar until they, the Roman emperors took over, which was in 46 BCE. Now, let's take a look at the next significant event of the Jews, which illustrates their diminishing fortunes because of their chatoim. What is this significant event? This event is Hanukkah. And since today is, of course, Hanukkah, it's appropriate that at least I mention, you know, some ideas about Hanukkah. Now, it's important to remember that the fact that Antiochus was able to create such terrible trouble for the Jews, this indicates that the, there was a tremendous declining in the spiritual situation of the Jews. Or else Antiochus could never have that power to actually go in and destroy the Beis Amigdash, partially so. That should make such trouble for the Jews that they would have to fight against them and try to restore the, the, uh, the Tahara of the Beis Amigdash. In other words, at that time, the, Jew, the spirituality of the Jews was declining to such an extent where the Kittrick was very great. And as a result of that, that gave the power to the Greeks to actually go into the Besamekdish and destroy it. However, 
What the Jews did is they made a tremendous comeback in ruchnius, in spirituality. And the truth is that this comeback in the spirituality at Hanukkah is the true significance of Hanukkah. However, I will not go into the essence of the idea of Hanukkah at this time. That's when I get to Hanukkah in terms of the Shuraman history. I'll go into what is Hanukkah really all about and so on. But uh, right now, I'm mainly looking at Hanukkah as we pass through Roman history and Jewish history and examine the parallels that as one rises, one falls. Now, however, this comeback of the Jews in spiritual terms was really short-lived. Now, and as I said before, the fact that Antiochus could create such difficulties for the Jews indicates that the Ketrugim, the prosecutorial attempts against the Jews by Esav were winning in a significant way. And even though the Jews attempted a comeback spiritually and they succeeded for a while, it didn't last. And they again began the downslide. Now, let us examine at the time of Hanukkah, which is 165 BCE approximately, let's take a look at what was going on in the uh, uh, next door in Italy, what was going on with their fortunes. And the answer to that is that we find that at around the same time in history, we see the rising fortunes of Rome. Why? Until the year 265 BCE, Rome basically involved itself in conquering Italy itself. They were not concerned with the outside world. In 265 BCE, Rome began its conquests outside of Italy. And this actually marks their journey toward eventual world dominion. It was the first time that Rome was leaving the boundaries of Italy to engage in battle outside. What happened in 265 BCE? Rome fought Carthage. Carthage, which was a nation on North Africa, was one of the world powers at that time. And at that time, they fought them and they won. That's called the First Punic War. That's the way historians refer to it as. Now, this happened before Hanukkah. Because if you recall, of course, it always takes time till the sins of the Jews go to such a level where then a calamity occurs. So therefore, the fact that Rome engaged with Carthage and won that First Punic War automatically put them as a nation that now had imperialist designs. And they won Carthage. Now, the last Punic War which, in which Carthage was, was utterly destroyed occurred in 146 BCE, which is right after Hanukkah. In other words, we see that shortly after the events of Hanukkah, Rome fought the last Punic War with Carthage and completely destroyed them. And what that did, of course, the significance of the destruction of Carthage was that Rome became a major imperialist power. So we see that the Punic Wars, which was a major phase in the idea of Rome expanding its might and becoming a true world power, happened literally right at the time of Hanukkah, shortly before Hanukkah, about 100 years before Hanukkah, and right shortly after Hanukkah. That is when it fought Carthage and it won, and that established Rome as a major world power with imperialist designs, where they would now go outside of Italy and try to conquer other nations. Now, had the Jews followed completely the tremendous spiritual initiative that they had begun in Hanukkah, 
then what probably would have happened is Rome never would have won the Punic Wars to become the dominated world power. Because they cannot dominate world scene unless the Jews do Chatoim. However, since they didn't follow that initiative, that spiritual initiative, then the original Ketrugim, which started, of course, before Hanukkah, because that's why Hanukkah happened in the first place. That's why Antiochus had this power. The original Ketrugim against the Jews, which, of course, by Asaph, which, of course, caused the eventual victory of the First Punic War, and then the success of Antiochus continued. And it continued to bring Rome to the status of a world power. This is the third major phase in the development of Roman history, uh, where we see the tremendous rise in the fortunes of Rome, and we begin to see the further declines of Israel. And we begin to see that at each point of Israel's uh, 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 falling, there is a subsequent major phase of rise in Roman history. Now, we can begin to examine the next significant event of the Jews, which even in that event clearly indicates their spiritual decline. And let us take a look at the same time again at the Roman rise in their civilization. What was this next significant event of the Jews which clearly indicates the spiritual decline? What is this event? And the next event, of course, is the Churban Baishani, the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. Now, the fact that the Beis HaMikdash could be destroyed at all indicates the terrible spiritual decline that the Jews had fallen into. Because if not, the Kitra could never have been so great against them that would have demanded such a destruction. So therefore, we see that the spiritual decline that they had gone into was of course awesome and therefore demanded as a result the Chum Baisheni. This is what we say. Now, this spiritual decline of the Jews at that time created a great kitrug against the Jews again. Now, if that's the case, then if we examine the parallel in Roman history, we have to see a great rise in some sense. Now, the question is, what was the significance of the fact that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed? And the answer to that is that it meant that until now, we saw only a decline in Method A. That Method A, which is the wealth and dominion and power of the Jews, was steadily eroding or steadily declining. In other words, that this method to massacre and the Kilkum creation was steadily eroding. But they were not in Method B yet. From now on, after the Choban Baishani, the Jews are forced into Method B. They switched. That was the switch point. In other words, they were forced into method B, which of course is the exile, the domination, and the persecution. And in that method, they would now have to massacre the Kilko in creation. This was the true significance of the Chobim of the second Beis Now, thus, after the Chobim, we now witness great persecutions, forceful dominations, and real exile away from Eretz Israel, because we are witnessing a new method of, of course, being massacred in the Kilkel in creation. Thus, the exchange of the brochus, which of course was wealth and dominion, was now complete. And it was brought about by the sins of the Jews. And it was foretold by Yitzchak almost 2,000 years before. Now, if the Jews do finally lose the brochus, this wealth and dominion, and it is given over to Esau, then who will do this transfer in actuality? Who is going to wrest or take away this wealth and dominion from the Jews? 
and transferred over to Esav. And you know what the answer is? Esav himself. Because Esav himself will do it no other. He will take his own brachas back. How do we see this? Because it says in the Chumash, Yitzchak says to Esav, and when you will be when you will be aggrieved because Yaakov is not observing the mitzvahs, if you remember the, the earlier interpretation, the earlier pshat, when you will be saddened and aggrieved and bothered by the fact that Yaakov is not doing the mitzvahs and therefore he doesn't deserve the brachos. You yourself will remove the yoke, which is the dominion from upon you. And that is exactly what happened. Yitzchak is foretelling exactly that when the time comes that the methods must switch, when A has to turn into B, when the Yidin have to lose the brochus, when the time comes, who is going to be doing it? Esav himself, or the nation that represents Esav. You will remove this yoke and no one else. And that's exactly what happened. Esav, as represented by Rome, forcibly destroyed the Beis Amigdash, which represents method A to the Jews, because as long as the Beis Amigdash was, they had political autonomy, and even when they didn't, they were still in the land of Israel. They had a measure of wealth, and they had a measure of dominion. And what did they do? They forcibly destroyed the Beis Amigdash, which represents the method A to the Jews, and they took it. They took this wealth and dominion to themselves. And how do we see this represented? Because they took the kalim of the Beis Amigdash. And where did they take it? They took it to Rome. In other words, and this is indicated in the Arch of Titus, which still stands among the ruins of Rome. And what does it have there? The Arch of Titus, which stands at the entrance to the Roman Forum, to the ruins of Rome, has the Romans carrying away the candelabra of the Jews. That is the indication that the brochus of dominion and wealth now is permanently goes to the Romans. In other words, this arch of Titus, which has the picture of the Jew of the Romans carrying away the menorah of the Jews, it's a symbolic statement that they now have the wealth and dominion given to Yaakov 2,000 years ago. And I thought many times that it's interesting when you look at the Roman Forum and the Rome, the old Rome, it's all in ruins. The arch of Titus still stands as one of the few things which is almost perfectly preserved from 2,000 years ago. Why is it that the Roshim allowed the Arch of Titus to stand and the rest of Rome is in shambles? And the answer to that, obviously, is because the Arch of Titus, with a picture of the Romans carrying away the Jews, still stands because Rome still dominates the Jews. That arch is the physical expression, the symbol, that Rome still dominates the Jews that they have the brochus of Yaakov. Therefore, that arch still stands. This is a, you know, an, an interpretation of why among all the ruins of Rome, that arch still stands perfectly preserved. And the answer is because that is a symbol of the reality that Rome still subjugates and dominates the Jews. And the arch of Titus, of course, indicate that. Thus, the event in Roman history which indicates their rise and good fortune, and which parallels the event in Jewish history, which indicates their spiritual decline, is the same event. The destruction of the Beis HaMikdash at the hands of the Romans themselves. The destruction of the Beis HaMikdash indicates that the spiritual decline of the Jews, 
to such a tremendous extent. And the fact that it was destroyed by the Romans indicates their tremendous rise, that they now have the brochus of Yaakov. In other words, that method A, which is the brochus, was permanently removed from the Jews and transferred to Esav's ears by Esav's ears himself. Thus, it seems, therefore, that Esav's descendants finally met Yaakov's descendants at the crossroads. They locked in battle, and Esav's descendants emerged victorious. This is what happened, or it seems to have happened, at that important juncture in the year 70 CE. Finally, Jewish history and Roman history merged together. And where do they merge? With Esav taking away and destroying the Besamekdash, taking away the Brochus, as predicted by Yitzchok 2,000 years before. You will be the one who will remove that yoke. And that is the significance of the of the, of the, Chubim, of the second Besamekdash. However, we know from before that since the Jews will now bring the Tikkun of the Bria through method B, which is exile, subjugation, and persecution, then Esav's descendants don't really realize what's really happening. What does that mean? That Esav's descendants don't realize that their victory in attaining the wealth and dominion from Yaakov merely makes them a possible candidate to enable the Jews to massacre the Bria in the first place, which is, of course, through, from, uh, in the first place. In other words, they don't realize that since they now have power and dominion, that they can be the instrument by which the Jews can massacre the Kilku in creation as a result of Method B. Now, since they hate the Jews so passionately and of their own free will, they have been chosen by the Rabbani Shlom, and therefore they are allowed by the Rabbani Shlom. God does not interfere with their evil designs to subjugate and persecute the Jews. And this, of course, enables the Jews to bring a tikkun to the Bria and get Edom Habra. Therefore, we see that Esav and his descendants are the very instruments of Anhogos Yichod, unknowingly and unwittingly. What have we seen so far? What we've seen so far is that the truth, or rather the principle, about the relationship between Yaakov and Esav, in that it's an inverse one, that when the fortunes of one rise, the others fall, and vice versa. We've seen that this principle is correct. As the spirituality of Yaakov declines, as it goes down, then we see simultaneously that the good fortunes of Esav rise. Now, it is important to note that only Yaakov can initiate the upward movement of Esav. Esav cannot do it by himself. And how does Yaakov do this? He does it by his chatoim. In other words, Esav can only wait until this occurs, until Yaakov or his descendants actually do sins, do chatoim. And when it does happen, of course, then he can prosecute the Jews, and of course he can prosecute Yaakov. And of course, and then he can remove the brachas. In other words, Yaakov is the initiator and Esav is the responder to this initiation. Thus, it is not up to Esav at all whether he achieves power or dominion at all, but rather it's only up to Yaakov and his descendants. Only they can determine this. If they do the mitzvahs, then Esav goes nowhere. And if they do averus, if they do sins, then of course Esav reigns supreme. This is important to understand. That Esav in its himself 
has no power whatsoever to do anything. Therefore, even if you see Asif great, it is not that Asif is great by his own power. It is because that Yaakov and his descendants have made Asif great. Therein lies the power of Asif. Therefore, when you sin, then Asif becomes great. And of course, by Asif, I mean whoever represents him, which we of course know is Rome. And today, of course, is Christianity and Western civilization, as I will explain soon. So therefore, when you see that Asif is great, know then that it is not Asif's power, but that it is really the power given to him by Yaakov. Because since Yaakov and his descendants sin, therefore, of course, Asif takes the brachos away, and therefore he achieves world dominion and material abundance. Very important idea to understand. We continue next week. At this point, I want to mention two extremely significant events that occurred in the history of Rome, or as we know, the history of Asaph. Now, I won't explain them at this time because it would take us too far afield from our topic. In other words, to, to go into an explanation of why these things happen. I won't go into that. But I would like to mention the events. At least we can see what's been happening in a significant way in the history of Rome or Esau. Now, the first event is the transcendence of Esau from a specific nation to a religion or an ideology, which can and has in fact been adopted and embraced by many nations. In other words, that Esau formally has been represented or has been embodied by individuals, or one, one individual or one nation, etc., what happened is, as I will explain, is that Asaph, the concept of Asaph, or that which represents Asaph, is no more a single nation. It is now a religion or an ideology. And that has profound effects, of course, on the future of the Jews. Now, what do I mean? As previously mentioned, Asaph is in fact Edoim. We know that. The Gemara says that. And we know that Edoim is in fact the Roman nation. Edoim Zuroimi. That's the Gemara says again. Now, how does it come about that Rome is Edom, who is Asaph? If Asaph started out in Eretz Israel and went to the south and resided in the lands of Haseir, and of course that's where Edom was. We know that this came about, as I had mentioned previously, through the Etruscan civilization, who historians know was an oriental people. They don't know where they came from, but they do know that they are oriental people and they settled in Italy, in the peninsula of Italy. And they conquered and they influenced the peoples of the Italian peninsula. And after a while, of course, they became absorbed in the Italian peninsula. Now, as a result of the Etruscans, then Asaph now resides or has his seat of residence in Italy. Now, however, in the early 4th century ACE, a very interesting thing happened. Until now, we see Rome as being the embodiment of Asaph. Because Rome, of course, comes from Edom, and Edom, of course, originates from Esav. What happens? In the 4th century ACE, Constantinople decides to adopt the official religion of the Roman Empire. He, be, he makes Christianity. In other words, Rome adopts Christianity as the official religion. Therefore, even though Rome would be sacked and destroyed by the barbarians, this is what would happen later on. It doesn't make a difference. Even though they would actually be destroyed by the barbarian invasion, Asaph would maintain his existence, no more through Rome, but through the religion of Christianity which Rome adopted as the official religion. 
Therefore, the embodiment of Esav is no more in a nation called Rome. It is now in the religion which Rome adopted and which they made their emblem, Christianity. Esav now, of course, transformed himself into the religion of, Esav, uh, of, of Christianity, and that now represents Esav. Now, this religion, Christianity, would ultimately, ultimately be adopted by almost all of Western civilization. That's what eventually would happen. Now, to indicate that Esav is in fact Christianity, and that Christianity is the true inheritor, the true successor of the Roman nation, a very interesting phenomena was caused by the rabbinic Islam to indicate to the world that do not think Rome has disappeared. Do not think that Esav has disappeared. It is in truth Christianity and their values and their morals and their ideals. What did the revolution do to indicate this to the world? Very, something very interesting. He caused the Pope, who represents the Christian religion, he is the seat of power of the Christian religion, to establish his seat of power and his residence where? In the Vatican, in Rome. Okay? And nowhere else. Now, therefore, Esav, who originally started out as a singular nation, namely the Roman nation, became transformed into an ideology or religion. Very important, significant event that happened. Thus, anyone who adopts Christianity as its religion is in fact representing Esav. Therefore, since Western civilization has in truth adopted and embraced Christianity as their official religion, they are therefore in fact the heirs and descendants of Esav. Now, therefore, by we I, I want to just mention that what do I mean by Western civilization? What nations are represented by Western civilization? Western civilization primarily means all of Europe and of course North America, which of course includes basically United States. This is Western civilization, which really has dominated the world for most of the, the for the last, certainly the last 2,000 years, the last 3,000 years or whatever. Now, as stated before, the head of the Catholic religion, who is the Pope, he sits in the Vatican, which of course is located in Rome. Why is this so? Because that symbolizes and it indicates that Christianity is the forebearers of Rome. It is the successor to Rome. That is why the Pope sits in the Vatican, which is located in Rome and nowhere else. Why? Because one would think that it's far more logical for the Vatican to be located in Jerusalem, in Israel. Why? Since the founder of their religion, he lived and he died there, and that's where he held his ministry. And he himself admitted to the holiness of the land of Israel and Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. So it's really illogical that Christianity has its seat in Rome. What's it doing in Rome? It should really be in Israel or Jerusalem. But the truth is, of course, that since Christianity is a successor to Rome, is a successor to Esav, therefore the Vatican must be situated in Rome and nowhere else. Because that indicates that now Rome is Christianity. This is what the Bernstein did. He caused the Vatican, or he caused it to go into the minds of those people who were founding Christianity to use Rome as a seat of power, not Eretz Israel. Now, we see therefore that Esav is now Christianity. In other words, he's no more a single nation, Rome, but he has now been transcended or transformed into an ideology, into a religion. And therefore, 
anyone who adopts Christianity is in effect representing Esau. Therefore, it is now powerful, uh, possible for many, many nations to represent Esau, whereas before it was only Rome who was the successor to Esau. That is what that accomplished. It is now possible for many nations all over the world to be a representative of Esau because they are adopting the key concepts of Esau, which of course is Christianity. This is one of the most significant things that happened to Esau through the years, through his history, is that he became transformed from a single nation to a religion, and therefore it is now possible for not one nation to represent Esau, but to, for many nations to represent Esau. In other words, it is now po possible not for one nation to persecute the Jews, but for all nations to persecute the Jews and still be called Esau. Okay, now, we now understand the rationale to a very puzzling phenomena in world history. Do you ever notice that in the UN, the UN is divided into three kinds of nations? There's the third world nations, there's the regular nations, and there's the superpowers. The superpowers, of course, the United States and, uh, and, uh, and the Soviet Union and so on and whatever. And basically the, the uh, regular nations are Europe, mostly Europe, the ad more advanced nations. Then you've got this whole block called the third world nations, who are basically very poor, they basically there's no democracy, and they, they certainly don't have any world power status. Do you ever wonder why the world is so neatly divided that way? Well, in terms of what we understand now, who Asaph really is, we can very easily understand this. In other words, we can understand that why is it that most of the world lives in relative poverty and has never achieved any world power status? Only in Europe and America has this happened. In other words, throughout history, only Europe and the United States have generally achieved material wealth and abundance and dominion. Whereas most of the world, of course, the so-called third world nations, these have been in relative poverty, and they've never really uh, enjoyed real power. The answer to this is now obvious. Since the Jews have lost the brokers of material wealth and abundance and dominion to Esau because of the sins of the Jews, and this is we know what happens, and since Esau now has these brokers, which we know again this is what happens, then obviously anyone who represents Esau will get these brokers. Now, since Esau has been transformed from Rome, a singular nation, to, to Christianity, which of course expresses itself now in Western civilization because they have embraced Christianity, then the brokers of wealth, abundance, and dominion have gone from Rome to who? To Christianity, to Western civilization, who represents Christianity. Therefore, they have world dominion. They have material wealth and abundance because Western civilization is Esau. That he now represents Esau. And the rest of the world who does not represent Esau, of course, does not enjoy these brochas, which Western civilization has, because, of course, they do not represent Esau. They represent, of course, other nations. This is the uh, first significant major event that occurred to the, in the history of Esau, that he was transformed not literally, but that the ones who represented him was transformed, of course, from a nation, and now he's transformed to a religion or an ideology. And since that is the case, now many nations can adopt that religion or ideology, and therefore represent Esau. Now, 
The second major significant event that occurred to Esav is a schism that broke out in the Catholic Church in the early 16th century because of Luther and the subsequent success by him to initiate the Protestant movement. In other words, at that time, we find that there was a tremendous break in the Catholic Church in terms of the, uh, the power, the power st structure. Now, the fact that Luther broke away from the Catholic Church weakened Christianity in general. And not only that, but especially the power of the popes were weakened. And the, uh, the power of Asaph was previously really located uh, in, uh, in, in the power of the popes. As a result of this, because the popes now became weaker, because there was now a schism in Christianity, there was now a major segment of the Christian population that didn't believe in the pope, it now is possible that each nation that practices Christianity in the form of Protestantism has Asaph's power in that nation itself. Thus now, there is no singular man that has this power anymore. But, rather, each nation can have the power of Esau independently. That's what the significance of the, uh, uh, the uh, beginning of Protestantism by Luther. In other words, until now, Esau, who is now Christianity, is represented by many nations of Western civilizations. But the power of Esau is still in the Pope, who of course is in the Vatican, which is located in Rome. When Luther came along, what he effectively did is he removed the central power in one man as representing Esau. Now, even though, it was, even though Western civilization re represents Esau, because they all have adopted Christianity, still before Luther, the power of Esau was still located in the Pope. However, once Luther came along and initiated the Protestant movement, the power of the Pope is now gone. And therefore, or tremendously diminished. And therefore, it is possible now that not only do the nations of Western civilization represent Asa because they have adopted Christianity, but now they themselves have the power of Asa because they do not listen anymore to the Pope. Now, thus in summary, we can now trace the history of Asa as follows. The first, of course, is that Asa began, of course, as a brother of Yaakov. Esav eventually developed or went uh, to Haseya, and there you have the nation of Edoim. Edoim eventually, through the Etruscans, conquer the peoples of Italy and inject their sophisticated and advanced culture in the Italian peoples. Then after that, when the Etruscans are no more, you now have the Roman Republic. That's the next phase, uh, where now Rome begins to assume the identity of Esav. After the Roman Republic, then you now have Rome not as a republic, but as an imperialist state. Rome now is an imperial country where you have emperors. It is no more a republic. Then the, new, the next identity of, of Esau is Christianity with Esau's power invested in one man, namely the Pope. And of course, the one who represents Esau at this time is Western civilization because they have adopted Christianity. And the last phase of Esav's identity is Christianity, again, with Esav's power now invested in many nations, many men. And this, of course, is a result of the Protestant Reformation, which was brought about by Luther. And, of course, 
this is represented by Western civilization. Now, I have spent a lot of time on the history of Rome. Why have I done this? Because I wanted to indicate that the true underlying causes for history is really readily apparent and readily available to one who knows the Hashkofa system of the Torah. Only through the Hashkofa, actually, can one achieve a true understanding of human history. It is not like historians think that the causes of history is either political, military, or economic, or, or whatever. Uh, the true causes of history is really Hashkofa, which of course is found in the Torah. These other vehicles or instruments which shape history, namely the economic situations of nations, the political structure, the history of ideas, uh, and the military ongoings of nations, these are merely the vehicles or the instruments of how the Rabbani Shalom shapes history when he wants to. And of course, what determines why the Rabbani Shalom shapes history in the first place, that is the theoretical design of the Bria. And the only way to know that design, of course, is by studying Hashkofa. And that's exactly what we've done. By understanding what transpired by Yaakov and Esav at the Brochus of Yitzchak, and what exactly was the interchange, we are able to trace, because of the principles laid down at, at that point, we are able to trace the history of the Roman Empire, or the history of Esav, and actually see that the principle which was uh, brought into existence at that time, that if Yaakov sins, Esav will get the brachos, actually exists in world history. Therefore, we are able to understand the events of world history through understanding the Hashkofa in the Torah itself. This is really what I wanted to indicate, and that's why I've spent time on going through the evolution of the history of the identity of Esav. Now, we can now answer the two questions which were previously posed. What was the first question? Even if it is decreed, decreed, or even if it's necessary that Jews must suffer evil, that they have to be subjugated and eventually persecuted by another nation. The question is, why was Esav, who we know is identified with Rome, who we know is identified with Christianity, who we know is identified with Western civilization, why are they given the position for so long, for 2,000 years, to be in dominion over the Jews and to persecute the Jews, more than any other nation that has ever subjugated and persecuted the Jews? This was the original question I asked. We now have enough understanding, enough theoretical background to answer this question. The fact that Esav has had wealth and dominion so long, in other words, the fact that Western civilization has had the material wealth and abundance and dominion for such a long time is because the Jews have lost these items because they've lost the brochus of wealth and dominion that was given by Yitzchak to Yaakov. And of course, and this came about because the Jews unfortunately have been doing chatoim and they've been doing it for a very long time. And as a result of that, Esav now has these blessings of wealth, dominion, uh, which, which of course he has enjoyed for so many thousands of years. Therefore, Esav has these brochus now instead of Yaakov, because Yaakov has lost them. Now, for as long as the Jews sin, then the brochus of wealth and dominion will remain with Esav. 
Since, and since they have been continuously doing Chatoim, the Jews, for 2,000 years, therefore Esav, who of course is identified with Rome, Christianity, and Western civilization, therefore they have had these brachas for so long, because that's how long the Jews have lost these brachas. Therefore, Esav has had these brachas for that length of time, which of course has been continuously for the last 2,000 years. Now, this is why Esav has been in such a world power, this is why Western civilization has been so powerful for the last thousands of years. Now, this explains why Asaph had been so powerful, but why have been they in the position of persecuting the Jews for so long? And the answer to that is that since Asaph hates Yaakov of his own free will, and he would oppress Yaakov if he could on his own free will, then what the Rabbani Shalom does is he uses Asaph after he has taken away the brochos from Yaakov, he uses Esav to be the instrument of Anhogas HaYichod. And we know that. What Anhogas HaYichod is, 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 is that method B, or that system, by which the Jews can correct the defect in creation, which I had mentioned previously, through exile, subjugation, and persecution. That is the second way that Jews can correct the situation in creation. Therefore, what the Rebbe Shalom does, is that he uses Esav, who now has the brochus of Yaakov, and since they hate ya- Esav hates Yaakov of his own free will, then he uses Esav to be the instrument of Hanogas HaYichod, that where the Jews themselves will be able to bring a correction to creation through ex- going through ex- exile, <coughs> subjugation, and persecution. Therefore, the Rebbe Shem allows Esav to actualize what he wants to do, and therefore he allows Esau to persecute the Jews with these brachas themselves. That is why Esau is so powerful and has afflicted the Jews for so long. He is so powerful because he has Yaakov's brachas for so long, for such a long duration. Because Yaakov, unfortunately, and his descendants have been sinning for so long. And the reason why he has afflicted the Jews for so long for such a long duration, for 2,000 years, is that what the Rabbani Shalom has allowed is that since Esau hates the Jews on his own accord, and we find that whoever identifies themselves with Esau gets that hate by themselves, of their own free will, therefore the Rabbani Shalom has made him the actual instrument of Anhogas Yichud, and that Esau himself is the one that will bring the Jews to their ultimate redemption. Because the Jews will suffer exile, subjugation, and persecution, which is the way that they are now bringing a tikkun, a correction to creation. They will, of course, suffer these things at the hands of Esav. And unwittingly, Esav is bringing the Jews closer to the uh, uh, tikkun of the Bria, which, of course, ultimately will bring the Jews to Oidum Habor. Now, the second question which I posed before was, why is it that Rome rose to world power status relatively shortly before the the Chumbai uh, Sheni, before the destruction of the Second Temple, and also before the exile of Israel? Why is it, you see, that Rome, interestingly enough, rose to this world power and dominion in a, rel- a relatively very short time before the Jews suffered the worst fate that has ever befallen them, namely their Beis Hamikdash? The temple was destroyed, and subsequently, very shortly thereafter, they went into exile. How do we understand this? Well, again, we can now understand in terms of the framework that was offered previously. And the answer to that is that, what does the Chorben Bayesheni, 
what does the fact that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed and the fact that the Jews were exiled, what does it really indicate? What was really going on in the Pneumius of the Bria? And the answer to that is that the fact that the Jews lost the Beis HaMikdash and they were exiled indicates that the two methods which Jews have to massacre the Kilkel in creation, the two methods which Jews have to correct the defect in creation, which I had mentioned previously, is now switching. That's what that indicates. What does that mean? Until now, the Jews could be massacred creation through material wealth and dominion. This is method A. And that's really what they've had from the time of Shlomo HaMelech until the Churban Ba'i They've had relative uh, wealth and dominion at least part of their history. But because the Jews have been sinning for so long, then this method A has been slipping, has been diminishing slowly. So you find the Jews slowly losing autonomy, slowly being subjugated, slowly being exposed to persecution. Because the Jews were slowly losing that method A, which Yitzchak gave to Yaakov on the condition that Yaakov observed the mitzvahs. Then he can bring a tikkun to creation. When Yaakov and his descendants begin sinning, then instead of correcting creation, they are destroying creation. They are makalkal debriah. So therefore, this method, of course, must be taken away. Therefore, because we have seen that the Jews have sinned, therefore, slowly, this method has been taken away from them. Now, because of the chatoim, as I said, this method was taken away and replaced with method B, or the second way to massacre the creation. And what method is that? That method is exile, subjugation, and persecution. That now the Jews would have to remain steadfast in their religion, even though they are now in another land, even though they are subjugated by another nation, and even though they are persecuted. Now they have to be able to remove the power of the Sultan. How? By remaining righteous and re- continuing to observe the mitzvahs, even though they are on this exile, subjugation, and persecution. This is the second method of being massacred the creation. And since they have now have lost method A, they are of course now are into this method B. So therefore we see that the Choban Ba'i the destruction of the second temple, and the subsequent exile of the Jews, is the manifestation of that switching of method A to method B. That is the premise of the event of the Choban and the Golas. That no more would the Jews correct creation by having dominion and wealth and abundance and having autonomy in the land of Eretz Israel. They don't do that anymore because they have lost it because of the Chatoim. They now have to bring a Tikkun to creation through method B, which is that they have to go amongst the nation and suffer at their hands and remain Sadikim even though, in spite of it. And this method, of course, will massacre creation. Therefore, since the Jews have completely lost the brachas at the time of the Chub Ma'ashani, at the time of the destruction of the Temple, and we know that Esav gets them instead, we would expect a tremendous rise in Rome before the Chub takes place, which would indicate they're taking the brachas, that Esav takes the brachas for themselves. This is what we'd ex- expect. In other words, if the Choban Ba'ashani and the Golos of Jews indicates that the Jews are leaving method A and going to method B to correct the defect in creation, they are leaving the method of material wealth, abundance, and power in order to bring a tikkun to the Bria, and they're now going into the second method called persecution. 
subjugation and exile, then and we know that Esav, of course, will get that wealth, abundance, and dominion that the Jews are losing. We would expect that at around the time that the Jews do in fact lose this, we would expect a tremendous rise in the fortunes of Esav, who is Rome. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened in history. That Rome acquired world power status, which is the Brochus of Yitzchak, shortly before the Chubim of the Baisheni and the Golas of the Jews. History perfectly reflects exactly what was happening in the Pneumius of history. Now, we have now achieved an understanding of why Esav, who is identified with Rome, and why actually Christianity, and why Western civilization is so wealthy and powerful for so many thousands of years. And why they've been able to subjugate and persecute the Jews for so many thousands of years. And why we are still under their dominion even now. We have an understanding. And our understanding, of course, is based on the fact that we understand what transpired between Yaakov and Esau at the time that Yitzchak gave the blessings. We now have this understanding, and that is why I have dwelt so long on this particular aspect of history, namely the history and the development of Esav, to show you that <clears throat> the understanding of what moves world events, world powers, is only achieved through the study of Hashkofo, which of course is only found in the Torah itself. Now, we can now see how great is the mitzvah of kibud over Ein. How great is the mitzvah of respecting or honoring your father and mother? Why? Because since Esav shed tears over the fact that he wasn't blessed by Yitzchak his father, as we have learned in Pasha's Tildes, in the Chumash, why did he shed those tears? Because he wasn't blessed by Yitzchak his father. Why did he want to be blessed so much by Yitzchak his father? Because since he loved Yitzchak so much, he loved him, he loved his father, he wanted his father's blessings. And also, he wanted to give his father the pleasure that a father gets when he blesses his son. And that's what he wanted to do to Yitzchak. Therefore, this act, this tremendous act of kibur over aim, when he cried, okay, this is what made him eligible, if you recall, as a result of this act, to receive the brochus if Yaakov loses them because of his chatoim. It was the act of kibbut of Ra'in that has enabled Esau to get the brochus if Yaakov loses them through his chatoim. So we see, therefore, how great is the mitzvah of kibbut of Ra'in and what can be achieved as a result of that. And of course, we know that once Esau got those brachas, look, look at the world has been for the last 2,000 years as a result of the fact that Esau and the, and the uh, nations and uh, religions that identify themselves with Esau, look what they've done to the world as a result. But this is the significance of the mitzvah of Kibbut of Aim. This is what it got Esau. And with this, we can understand three chazals, three mamoy chazals, with this understanding of how great the mitzvah of Kibur over Aim is. The first Chazal that I want to mention is an interesting Zoya. The Zoya says the following That no man who ever lived, no man who ever lived, honored his father as much as Esav did. 
וזה גורם לו שישלוט בעולם הזה. And this caused Esav to rule in this world. This is what the Zoya says. Now, we can ask a question. What is the logical connection between the fact that Esav had tremendous kibbut of and his ruling in this world? In other words, how does one cause the other? Because that's what it would seem in the Zoya, that there was no man who ever honored his father, of course, as much as Esav, which itself is a staggering fact. But the Zoya continues to say that this idea that because Esav honored his father to such an incredible extent, he was Zuchah that he rules in Ilm Hazer. So the question is, why? Why does the fact that he had such kibbutz of aim, why does this necessitate, why does this cause him having such a tremendous dominance in world affairs? This is the question. And this is one Maimah Chazal which I want to try to deal with. There's another Maimah Chazal. And this Maimah Chazal is in Breshis Rabo. And it says over there that Ayyadei Shehoyo Mechabedis Oviv what does that mean? It says, because Esav honored his father, as a result of this, kingdoms and rulers desire to associate with him. And by association, it means, of course, through marriage. In other words, that kings and different rulers of many nations wanted to intermarry. They wanted to unite with the kingdom of Esav. Why? So the Midrash says, because Esav was Mechabed, his father. Now, this also is very difficult to understand. Do kings and rulers, do they so recognize the greatness of the mitzvah of Kibud over Aim that they want to intermarry with one who observed it so greatly? In other words, is the Midrash saying that because of the tremendous moral and ethical understanding that the Goyim have, in other words, that they view that Esav was so great in his observance of Kibur of honoring his father and mother, because of that, they want to unite with him? Do they have such a profound understanding of what Kibur of Aim is? Therefore, the question is, of course, why is it because of Kibur of Aim, they want to intermarry, they want to unite, they want to associate themselves with Esav and his descendants? This is the question. In other words, what exactly is the meaning of the Midrash that states this idea? There's a third Chazal that says, again in the Midrash, that Ad Achshav, even until now, Esav is demanding his uh, his reward for honoring his father. In other words, even until the present time, right now, Esav still demands some kind of recompense for the fact that he has honored his father. So therefore we can answer the question, what form does this reward take place in? In other words, Esav is still receiving his reward even now since he's demanding it. This is what we can surmise from this Midrash. So the question of course is, in what form does this manifest itself, this reward? How is Esav being rewarded for the fact that he honored his father and mother. This is the third question which I wanted to ask. Now, 
these three Ma'amori Chazal, these three Chazal, these three ideas can be understood in terms of the previous ideas which were stated. In other words, because of these ideas, this entire framework which has been developed about the events which have transpired between Yaakov and Esav, one can understand very readily these different uh, Chazals. Now, what is the understanding of these Chazals? Because of him honoring Yitzhak so greatly when he cried, this is what we have learned. That because Esav honored Yitzchak so greatly when he cried. In other words, when he heard that Yaakov received the brochus from Yitzchak, it says Vayefch, that he cried exceedingly. He let out a great scream, and then he began crying. That in itself was a tremendous kibbut of, of Yitzchak, because the reason why he cried, as stated previously, is because he loved Yitzchak, and he wanted his father, who he loved very much, to bless him. This is Kibbut Ovo'ein. In addition, he knew that it gives great pleasure to a father when a father blesses a son. So therefore, since Yaakov took the brachas, it now meant that Yitzchak would not bless him with those blessings that he would have given a firstborn, because Yaakov took them. Therefore, of course, it also meant that he is denying Yitzchak the pleasure of giving these brachas to his firstborn son, Esav. In other words, the idea of Esav's crying revolves itself around Kibbut Ov. And we know that because he honored Yitzchak so greatly when he cried, he therefore became eligible to receive the brachas. Of course, if Yaakov and his descendants sin, which means, of course, that instead of wealth and dominion going to Yaakov, it now can exchange and go over to Esav. This is the consequence, of course, of the kibbutz over aim that Esav displayed, that he is now eligible to receive those brachas, to receive the material wealth, the domination, he is now eligible to receive. Of course, only on the condition that Yaakov sins. However, if Yaakov sins, then of course he gets them. Now, with this understanding, which was developed previously, we now can answer the three previous Mamori Chazal. Now, that which it states in the Zohar that no man who ever lived honored his father as much as Esav, and that this actually caused Esav to rule in this world, we now understand what it means. In other words, this then answers the Zoya, which says that Kibbut Ovo'em of Esav caused him to achieve world dominion or world domination. Why? Because we know that the Kibbut Ov gave Esav the brachas, and when Yaakov sinned, he became ruler of the world which means, of course, that he received those brachas. And we see that he became the rule of the world because that's, of course, what's meant by Ro Roman domination of the world. So therefore we see that what is meant by the Zoya, that as a result of Kibbut over Aim, Esav now dominates the world, what that means, of course, is that as a result of Kibbut over Aim, he becomes eligible to receive brachas if Yaakov sins, and the brachas is world domination. That's exactly what the Zoya means. This then is the logical connection between Kibbut Ov and world domination. That Kibbut Ov is what got Esav, the brochus. And these brochus are material wealth and abundance. And also, of course, world dominion. 
That is what the Zoya means, alludes to. That is, it is his kibbutz over Ein, as a result of which he received the brochus of wealth and world domination. Now, besides understanding the Zoya, we can also understand the second Mama Chazal, the second statement that Chazal said. And what is that? That kingdoms want to intermarry with Asaph's family because of Kibidov. This is what Chazal say. And the question was very difficult to understand. Do, do nations of the world so understand the significance of Kibidov that they want to marry with a person in, marry with a person that actually exhibited Kibidov? You expect this by Tzaddikim, not by Rishoyim, not by the Umas Oilam, not by the nations of the world. So then what does this mean? Well, we can also understand what this means according to what was explained. And that is that as a result of the fact that Esav achieved Kibbutov, this of course enabled Esav to get the brokers from Yaakov. If of course Yaakov sins. And as a result of the fact that he gets the brokers, he achieves world dominion. Therefore, once Esav achieves world dominions because he got the brachas as a result of Kibbut of Vo'em, then obviously any kingdom wants to unite and ally itself with a world power, especially through marriage. And that's really what has been happening uh, for, for many thousands of years, that many kingdoms uh, allied themselves through the marriage of a daughter to a son, a princess to a prince. Therefore, Therefore, it is not because of the kibbutz of Vo'ain that they wanted Esau's family so much. In other words, that they recognized the greatness of kibbutz of. But it is the repercussions or the consequences of Esau's kibbutz of, which of course we know, is that this may, means that Esau is in a position of world domination power. And we know he received it because of the brochus which Esau which, uh, got back from Yaakov. So therefore, it is not the greatness of Kibbutz of Aim that they recognize, but rather the true advantage of uniting with the world power. And that is what that medrash means, that nations want to unite with Esav, not because of Kibbutz of Aim, but because of Kibbutz of Aim, Esav received the brachas, which of course is material wealth and world domination. And it is that world domination that nations want to achieve. So therefore, they have a tremendous desire, of course, of uniting with Esau's family through marriage. This is what is meant by that. Now, in addition, we can also understand the last Maima. And what is that? That it says that the reward of Esau, which continues presently, Esau is demanding. And we ask the question, in what form? Does this reward manifest itself? And the answer to that is that the reward is the brochus, which is wealth and world domination, which Asif has, even in the present time, as seen by the Christian and Western civilizations, wealth and world dominion. This is the reward. This is the way Asif, of course, uh, claims that reward. In other words, as a result of Kibbut Ovo Aim, the reward which he receives is the brachas, and we know what the brachas are, that they are material wealth and, of course, world domination. That is the reward to Esav. So we see thereby that when these brachas are in the hands of Yaakov, Yaakov uses them, of course, to remove the kilkel 
in creation. That is his way of doing it. That's method A. When he loses them, as a result of his chatoim, and he goes into method B, then Esav, of course, gets those brachas, which is world domination and wealth, and he gets them in the sense that they are his reward for exhibiting such a tremendous amount of kibud ovoim. That is the difference between the uh, between uh, how Yaakov uses the brochus and how Esav uses the brochus. That to Yaakov it presents a method of being masakin the kilkel in creation, and to Esav it is his cha, it is his reward of the fact that he was uh, he observed so greatly kibud ovoim. And the, of course, the Zoya says that there was no man who ever lived that observed it as great as Esau, which is really remarkable. Now, we have now completed the presentation of the major ideas that comprise the internal plot or the hidden theme of the event of the blessings of Yitzchak to Yaakov and Esau. And I will continue this year next week.